Are Canadians getting an accurate account on their country's foreign policy in the Middle East? Do any of the opposition parties represent a substantive alternative to the Liberal government when it comes to foreign affairs? Are efforts to disrupt political campaigns having an impact on the election? What accounts for Justin Trudeau's policy shift not only toward Venezuela, but also Cuba? Does the Trudeau government's plan for infrastructure spending involve the privatization of public assets, including water and wastewater services across the country? On this week's Global Research News Hour, with days to go before Canadian voters head to the polls, we take a look at some of the issues being missed or misrepresented during the election campaign by both the political parties and the media. We first hold a discussion with Canadian activists Eve Engler and Ken Stone on Canadian foreign policy in the Middle East and the growth of militarism. We next hear from writer, author and lecturer Arnold August about recent changes in Canadian foreign policy in Venezuela and Cuba. Finally, award-winning writer and researcher Joyce Nelson comments on the creation under the governing Liberals of the so-called Canada Infrastructure Bank and why Canadians should be concerned about its plans for developing infrastructure across the country. On this week's program, Campaign 2019, the issues nobody is talking about in the Canadian federal election. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 18th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Momentum for a second vote on Scottish independence has been building steadily since the Brexit vote in June 2016, as Scots voted to remain in the European Union in contrast to the nationwide result that the UK should leave. Since then, the governing party in Scotland, the SNP, has argued that Scottish interests in relation to the country's future relationship with the EU have been ignored by Westminster. Not just that, but Scots feel betrayed. During the run-up to the independence referendum in 2014, they were told by the Unionists that if Scotland was to leave the UK, then its future in the EU could not be guaranteed. Just a few years later, Scotland is being taken out of the EU against its own will. That comes from the article, Scotland Edges Closer to Independence Amid Brexit Chaos, by Johanna Ross, posted October 16th, originally published at Infobricks. If Great Britain keeps its commitment to switch over its vehicles to electric by 2050, the government will see a whopping loss of £28 billion, or $35 billion, paid by motorists driving traditional gasoline and diesel-powered vehicles. That comes from a study released Friday by London-based Institute for Fiscal Studies examining the impact of the UK's net-zero greenhouse gas emissions law adopted in June and signed by previous Prime Minister Theresa May. England became the first G7 country to set the goal of reaching zero net emissions by 2050. Fuel duties on petrol 
powered vehicles make up almost 4% of total government receipts, and all of that will disappear unless urgent action is taken, according to think tank IFS study. The government may need to take a new approach to taxing motorists as all electric and plug-in hybrid vehicles become the norm, the study advises. That comes from the article, $35 billion, UK faces huge loss from electric vehicle adoption by John Lesage, posted October 15th, originally published at oilprice.com. We'll see if we leave, but there are no chances of becoming remotely like a great nation again with words and nothing concrete to back it up. For a start, the money is on the United Kingdom breaking up because the hedge funds will be aiming their profits at that next. If Scotland's bid for independence is successful, and it will be, Britain loses a very large chunk of its territory, waters, and with the latest oil find, wealth. In the surreal world of Brexit Britain, we have to consider the machinations of the driving force behind the Conservative Party strategy, keeping their funders happy. If not, there's no chance at all they would win the expected snap general election. That comes from the article, Johnson's Queen's Speech, Pre-Election Propaganda, It Can't Deliver, posted October 15th, originally published at True Publica. Given that the inspiration for Brexit amongst many corporate interests was precisely ripping up the red tape that has protected our countryside, waterways, and natural habitats for decades, to have no route to independent legal redress would be a source of considerable concern. Indeed, Johnson seemed to confirm exactly this point in his statement about the Queen's speech, heralding leaving the EU as, quote, a defining opportunity to tear away bureaucratic red tape, unquote. As the Brexit roller coaster rolls on, moving from hope and despair about a deal on an hourly basis, we should not be distracted from the real reasons why any Brexit is worse for the environment than continuing as a member of the EU. The loss of the level playing field will be a serious blow to those of us who depend on European law to protect our natural places and the other species we share them with. As an MEP, I will be voting on any withdrawal agreement, and rest assured, I and a vast majority of my fellow MEPs will not vote for a deal that does not include the level playing field on environmental standards. That comes from the article, Brexit, Environmental Law and the Level Playing Field, by Molly Scott Cato, MEP, posted October 15th, originally published at The Ecologist. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. We've heard a lot about fake news clouding people's understandings of the way the country and the world are working. But what about those propaganda narratives embraced by mainstream media? On this week's Global Research News Hour radio program, with days to go before Canadians go to the polls, we brought in two guests to deconstruct those narratives and myths surrounding flashpoints abroad. Eve Engler is an author and activist based in Montreal and the author of eight books on Canadian foreign policy. Ken Stone is an anti-war activist with the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War. 
since Syria is very much in the news these days, we should probably start with Canada's stance on Syria. The accepted wisdom is that Bashar al-Assad is a brutal, undemocratic dictator and that he's bombed his own people and used chemical weapons on them, even though that claim has been proven false. Uh, we also had during the campaign Foreign Minister Christian Freeland intervening to revoke the Syrian consular status of Wasim Ramli, apparently on the grounds that he's a sympathizer of Syrian President Assad and that he's made public statements to the effect that the group known as the White Helmets are terrorists. Now, Ken Stone, I know your group is involved with the Hands Off Syria campaign. Given that Canadians have been told what Canadians have been told about Syria, what are the key provable and factual points Canadian voters need to confront in order to have a role uh, in, in adequately crafting a responsible Syrian policy? Well, first of all, Canadian voters need to know that, according to Eve Engler, uh, whom I follow assiduously and whom I really enjoy reading his books, um, I, the Canadian government uh, is, is a junior partner in uh, the U.S. empire. And because of that, our foreign policy is tailored to help U.S. foreign policy. And in fact, um, there are times when the Canadian government acts as the front man for the U.S. empire so as to make it look as if the U.S. is not behind the operation. And I'll give you uh, three examples. The first one is Rwanda, where uh, a Canadian general, Romeo Dallaire, led the, uh, led the effort uh, to uh, um, overturn a government in, uh, in Rwanda. And they, uh, the uh, narrative isn't that at all, but that's what really happened. And perhaps Eve will tell you more about that. Another time was in 2011 in Libya, when a Canadian general led the uh, NATO operation, which was supposed to uh, see that there was a no-fly zone over Libya. And in fact, the NATO countries, including Canada, bombed the heck out of Libya. They bombed it into a failed state, and it's in a state of, of disarray and chaos right now, and people are climbing into boats by the thousands, flimsy boats, and many of them are drowning on the way to Europe. Uh, the third time was is Syria, which is the question you asked. And uh, the Canadian government uh, helped the U.S. empire here wage a regime change war. Uh, in, in the December of 2011, the Canadian, uh, the Canadian ambassador to Tunisia organized a pre-conference of a group called the Friends of Syria Group of Countries. This was the U.S. coalition uh, organized really behind the scenes by uh, Hillary Clinton for regime change in Syria. But the Canadian ambassador organized the meeting, uh, or the pre-meeting anyway, and so it made it look as if it's more acceptable when it's a Canadian government that has a reputation of being in favor of multilateralism and a supporter historically of the UN, a participator in UN uh, peacekeeping missions and so on. But the end result is the same, uh, that there was a regime change uh, that was organized uh, by the United, behind the scenes by the United States. Canada was a willing and, and able, uh, uh, eager partner in it. Uh, they, uh, they divided up the tasks in February 2012 in, in Tunis. And uh, the uh, different parties uh, armed, uh, promoted, helped, financed uh, proxy armies in Syria that tore the country apart 
for and the war is still going on now, eight and a half years later. I won't. There's no time to discuss what's happened, but uh, Canadians need to know that the Harper government was behind that. And when the Trudeau government got in, uh, uh, got into power in 2015, they continued the policy uh, till today. The Canadian, the Trudeau government uh, merely uh, took when the when the U.S. had this uh, U.S. coalition against ISIS. Uh, Harper had Canadian F-18 jets in it. Uh, Trudeau got rid, uh, took the F-18 jets out of it, but continued to participate in illegal flights over Syria without the permission of the government to refuel U.S. planes for reconnaissance, for transport, and so on. So the Canadian government has been involved in the war in Syria since 2011, and since 2013, the Canadian government led the Friends of Syria group of countries' economic sanctions effort against Syria. In okay, 20- let's give Evie Angler a chance to uh, to 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 uh, you bring his input to this uh, question. Do you have anything to add to that, Eve? Well, well, it's clear that um, the uh, Trudeau government, if you're talking about the upcoming elections, the Trudeau government has uh, continued uh, that policy of, of, of regime change policy has been at the forefront of, uh, of funding and promoting the white helmets, um, which is all part of this very uh, one-sided uh, depiction of what's gone on in Syria, um, that, uh, you know, Assad is responsible for all, all evil and the, and the, the side that we're backing is, is, uh, is all righteous. Um, and, and I think also the, the Trudeau government has also increased uh, special forces, right? There was Canadian special forces that were increased in the region as well. While re- reducing the, the, the fighter jets, they would increase the special forces. Um, so, so I think this is this is um, you know it's a it's a continuation of a of a Canadian policy of uh, alignment with uh, the U.S. empire, as Ken pointed out, and uh, it's uh, it's uh, you know what it's contributing to in the big picture is just um, more uh, division, more violence uh, uh, in the region that uh, a region that has you know obviously felt uh, been. Uh, experienced way too much uh, violence and foreign military intervention over, you know, recent decades. Mm. Uh, I think we should probably move on to our next topic, Israel-Palestine. And and my understanding is that Trudeau has actually voted in support of Israel more times at the UN than even his Israel-friendly predecessor, Stephen Harper. And last year, during the Great March of Return, there was over 100 Palestinian deaths at the Israel-Gaza border wall attributable to Israeli defense forces. Uh, Also, Gaza itself has been so damaged between military offenses and the longstanding economic blockade that reports are that the the territory is projected to be unlivable within months. Uh, Have any of the major parties articulated anything approaching a responsible policy with regard to Israel-Palestine, Eve? Uh, Well, I mean, uh, I think that the NDP and the Green Party is positions are substantially better than the liberals and the conservatives even worse. I think it's really important to note that uh, Anthony Housefather, the uh, liberal MP who uh, here in Montreal, who chairs the uh, Human Rights Committee, he is all over in Montreal area media boasting. Uh, I just read, read this article a couple of days ago in the Senior Times 
this is just a free a free paper, a free monthly in, in Montreal, boasting about how Canada has voted against more resolutions upholding Palestinian rights than the uh, uh, conservative government. He's boasted about that many times in the Canadian Jewish News. Uh, there was a debate. Um, so there, there, this is just like, you know, right out front of this, uh, you know, we're this uh, extreme anti-Palestinian uh, party that the the liberals are 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 are, are claiming. Now, there's the, the, you know the UN votes is one of many elements to that policy. You know, from condemning the the Palestine Solidarity Movement and labeling it anti-Semitic to uh, and reinforcing the uh, the free trade agreement that that you know allows products of uh, produced in illegal Israeli settlements to enter Canada duty free to this whole court case around the wines and they're spending huge amounts of public money. So you, you can't even label wines that are produced in illegal Israeli settlements properly. Like, so Canadian consumers can't even know, you know, where the wines are coming from. Um, so it, it's a multifaceted. And then there's also obviously the underlying one issue that never gets discussed, which is the, the charities and how there's hundreds of millions of dollars of uh, money raised in Canada every year that's subsidized by Canadian taxpayers through, through tax write-offs being delivered to uh, Israeli charities, some of which are explicitly racist, like the Jewish National Fund, some of which support Israeli military. Um, now, so none of the parties, none of the opposition parties, the NDP and the Greens, from what I can tell, are, are bringing up those type of questions, the more fundamental questions, but they are challenging some elements. I think if it you know, happened to be a Jagmeet Singh government, you'd probably see a change in uh, UN votes. Uh, I don't think you would see a, a you know a fundamental change to the many relationships between Canada and Israel, but you would see an improvement. Would you you see a reduction of in the anti the overt anti-Palestinian uh, um, positions? Uh, uh, so Ken Stone, what are you seeing in in your neck of the woods with regard to the you know messaging around Israel Palestine? Well, the fact is that uh, none of the political parties. Um, really support the Palestinian cause. And that's the, a true shame uh, because Canada is was one of the uh, uh, signing, uh, I forget what they call it, but the signing partners for the fourth Geneva Convention on people living in the occupy, uh, under occupation. So um, it's that's a great shame for Canada. Now, uh, Eve mentioned a number of things, but uh, one of the things that the uh, Liberal government uh, and the Parliament, I think, unanimously endorsed uh, recently was the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, uh, which meet, makes it um, supposedly anti-Semitic to criticize the state of Israel. And this has caused us a lot of problems and has caused the uh, anti-war movement and the pro-Palestinian solidarity movement a lot of problems over the years because... Uh, the powers that be are trying to label anybody who criticizes the state of Israel as anti-Semitic. And nothing could be further from the truth. The state of Israel has nothing to do with Judaism. It's a power, uh, a power projection of the U.S. empire in the Middle East. And to criticize it is not more, any more racist than criticizing the U.S. government or the Canadian government or any other government. But nonetheless, the, the liberal government has brought in a position uh, uh, calling uh, criticism of the state of Israel anti-Semitic. And the fact of the other political parties uh, on um, 
for example, the uh, the NDP or the Greens, when it comes to when push comes to shove and there are major issues in Palestine, such as the Great March of Return, um, they're not there. They're just not there. And so we we have to say that the uh, that there is nobody in Ottawa that we can call upon to speak up against uh, the state of Israel openly. Uh, the, the, the Canadian people have been shown by in um, a number of opinion polls to be overwhelmingly on the in support of the Palestinian cause against the settlements for an independent Palestinian state and so on. But you'd never get that impression from our leaders in Ottawa. So I would say our leaders in Ottawa of all parties have failed Canadians on the question of Palestine. Another area where I've not seen much pushback from our leaders in Ottawa uh, or in the media is the decision over a year ago to bulk up military spending to the tune of 70% over the next decade. Uh, the Conservative Party uh, wants to cut back on foreign aid and be a major deficit slayer, but there's no sign that uh, they intend to cut back on military spending. And I don't hear much on, on this front from the NDP or the Greens. Um, what did the two of you make of that lack of resolve with regard to cutting back on militarism? Um, the, uh, the, the increase in military spending per year that was projected by the Harper government and was not opposed by any other party was adopted lock, stock and barrel by the NDP, sadly, as I am a member of it. Um, that's about $19 billion a year. And according to the LEAP Manifesto and the LEAP organization, that's almost coincidentally the amount of money that it would take yearly in Canada to uh, have a green new deal so yeah, and create thousands of new jobs and uh, a green economy based on renewable energy. So what we're doing is we're spending on war what we could spend on instead to create a Green New Deal. And I think it's terrible that none of the political parties are st have stood up against it. That's my point. Okay, Eve? Yeah, well, taking off from, from Ken, what Ken said, the, the, the NDP actually uh, complained uh, when the Liberal Party uh, defense statement came out in mid-2017, complained that the 70% increase in military spending that was put in that policy, it was too much down the line, not enough of that money was being put up immediately. So they were basically saying, you know, we want even more money or more quickly, we want money more quickly. Um, the Green Party uh, statement election platform, uh, Dimitri Lascaris just recently wrote a story about this, very good story, shows um, the Green Party is basically complaining that the military doesn't have enough uh, um, money. Uh, none of equipment. Now, Elizabeth May was in Montreal about uh, 10 days or so ago, and I attended her event and I listened to the whole hour long press conference. Um, and then I tried to ask a question at the end. And I basically my question was, how can you justify supporting um, a, a procurement spending tens of billions of dollars to buy new naval vessels uh, and fighter jets um, when these are these contribute to the climate directly, let alone the you know the violence and the war that 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 goes on. But these the the they use incredible amounts of oil. They use incredible amounts of carbon uh, 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 emitting fuel. And and Elizabeth May basically refused to answer my question by by claiming that she had never supported 
the the uh, naval procurement plan, which is absolutely untrue. She's she's on record having supported. She's on record a number of uh, occasions complaining about uh, um, a military spending. It is true that she has you know opposed F thirty five. There are you know some you know she opposed the bombing of Libya in twenty eleven. There's a, there's a few sort of good things within there, but she is on record supporting um, uh, the naval procurement. And like I said, the 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 election platform of the Greens uh, complains about lack of military spending. So, so the, I mean, it, it, it's unbelievable, let alone, again, let alone what these weapons are being used for, let alone the, the ability to, you know, advance uh, U.S.-led wars and the inhumanity that comes out of Just taking this question at a narrow, at the most narrow, you know, the fuels that go into building them, the, the, the fuels that are used by the naval vessels, the fighter jets. Um, and uh, um, so, so what we have, we have a situation is that militarism is not... Uh, uh, questioned by the dominant uh, political parties. There's a lot of appetite among the public. Poll, polls show it's co kind of contradictory with regards to polling on the military. So most Canadians are sympathetic to the military, um, but it's very low on their priority list. So they prioritize basically, you know, like all the other major issues, you know, healthcare, the economy, the environment, all this kind of stuff, way ahead, way ahead of the military. Um, they have a sympathy towards the military, but but they but they put it down very low on their list. Um, but but political parties, for whatever reason, uh, basically choose not to uh, um, uh, you know sort of oppose militarism, oppose military spending. Um, they they view that as as uh, as not um, uh, serving their uh, their narrow interests. Okay, uh, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to to touch on this disruption network. I mean, speaking of your uh, intervention at the uh, the Green uh, Leaders uh, press conference, th this disruption network that's been put in place over the course of the campaign. I, I know both of you have been involved to some extent, approaching these politicians while they're campaigning, and uh, you know, effectively you know, interjecting with. Uh, uh, questions and, and comments that nobody else is raising. Could you comment on the effectiveness and the importance of that tactic in the context of the current campaign? Is it making a difference? Go ahead. Uh, I think it's made. I think it has made a little bit of a difference. I, I mean, we've had a series of interventions in different places across the country that have put issues like Palestine. Just the other day, uh, a crew in London, Ontario. Uh, challenge Trudeau on his anti-Palestinian policies. Um, you know, this is an issue that's not being discussed at all by the dominant media. Uh, we've had some break-ins into the into the dominant media by by making these interventions. We we generally uh, uh, you know uh, cover it ourselves and put it on social media so it so it gets around in in that way. Um, you know, the, these issues, there's a, a number of important issues, uh, uh, particularly around foreign affairs that are just not being discussed. Like, you know, Canada's whole hog support for this regime change effort in Venezuela openly. Um, this is something the dominant media doesn't even, doesn't even, you know, ever sort of mention in a, in a negative light. Uh, and so there's been a series of interventions, one where Christian Freeland's event in Toronto was uh, you know, uh, stopped a, you know, a few minutes early that elicited a number of stories. Uh, another intervention in Toronto where there was a, a number of us part of the Haiti Solidarity uh, Movement that were occupying Justin Trudeau's uh, office, electoral office. And the same day, a member of the Democracy Network Canada uh, went to the press conference that Trudeau was having in Toronto and brought up the office occupation uh, taking place simultaneously in Montreal. And Trudeau wasn't even aware of it yet. 
and you can see a video of Trudeau looking quite quite sort of perplexed. Um, so so you know, big picture, obviously this is this is not having a effect on the overall election, but I think this has been a one tactic that um, progressive forces, particularly you know anti-war, anti-imperialist forces, have been able to uh, you know utilize to uh, make their voices heard a bit in the, in the election campaign. Okay, let's get Kevin Ken a chance to sound off on this before we close. Okay, very briefly, uh, we uh, um, chased uh, Justin Trudeau out of the Labor Day parade in Hamilton, and we also chased him out of the picnic uh, at the Bayfront Park. And we raised the issues of uh, Venezuela and Syria. Uh, we were chanting, hands off Syria, hands off Venezuela. I think he got the point. I think that people, uh, the, the thousands of people who were at the, uh, the, the uh, Labor Day event got the point, and uh, some of the media got the point. Most people, most of the media covered for Trudeau and didn't say he, uh, he ingloriously ran with his tail between his legs. But uh, all these kinds of things do help. And uh, I think that uh, while they don't, as Eve said, while they don't change the major direction of the campaign, they bring up issues that otherwise would not be brought up. We just heard Montreal-based author and foreign policy critic Eve Engler and Hamilton-based anti-war activist Ken Stone discussing some of the myths and realities surrounding Canadian foreign policy. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Canadian foreign policy under Justin Trudeau has been particularly notable for its hostile foreign policy in Latin America, particularly its policy toward Venezuela, as has been addressed in past episodes of this program. Arnold August, a Montreal-based author, lecturer, and journalist, has been traveling across Canada speaking to audiences on the relations between U.S., Cuba, Venezuela, and Canada. He was in Winnipeg on October 3rd. His presentation noted the shift in relation to Venezuela was connected with so-called normalization of relations with Cuba, which he depicts as more of a recalibration or strategic shift of America's long-standing imperial aggression towards the Latin American country. In a conversation with the Global Research NewsHour on the day after his Winnipeg presentation, Arnold August addressed the question of how and why Canada likewise adopted its own strategic recalibration toward Cuba and Venezuela. Canada is an imperialist country in its own right. It has economic interests in various countries in Latin America, such as in the field uh, of gold in Venezuela, economic interests in uh, Honduras, in Haiti, and other countries. And it has its own agenda to try to control the situation in these other countries and to make sure that Canadian businesses are able to thrive in these other countries. It just so happens one Canadian company, company share it, which produces uh, uh, nickel, uh, has very good relationship with Cuba. Uh, the company uh, leadership have gone there where, uh, often. They meet regularly with the leadership, including at one point Fidel Castro when he was alive and the former president of Sherat was alive. But that is okay. That goes down well. There's no problem there. Now, with regard to the companies in Venezuela, such as Gold Barrack, 
Crystal X, the Bank of Nova Scotia, and other companies, they have very important interests in Venezuela. Even though Venezuela has only 1% of the gold reserves in the world, which is not very much, the known potential reserves of gold is far higher than that. And thus the Canadian mining companies, which in general are the most important sector of the economy that are active in Latin America, would like, like to get back what was nationalized by the Chavez government with regards to their mining interests and find a way that they could exploit their watering at the mouth to get a hold of those new gold reserves that are sitting there in Venezuela. So Canada, while Trump has ratcheted up the uh, rhetoric, the sanctions against Venezuela and Cuba, the Canadian interest in Latin America has also been developing at the same time. So I guess you would say it's a parallel movement. Now, Canada in general, while it's in its imperial power on its own, in general, it follows U.S. policy. And a case of Justin Trudeau, never before in the recent history of Canada, going back to the 1950s, has there been Canada as an imperialist country that has so closely followed lock and step the American policy towards Latin America. Uh, uh, last time I gave a couple of examples that people uh, seem to like very much. Comparing Trudeau as a prime minister, not to someone like you and I, a leftist, if we were prime minister of Canada, but comparing him to uh, you know, conservative leaders in Canada. For example, Diefenbaker from Saskatchewan took a positive stand with regard to the Avro missiles, refusing an initial stage to have nuclear wars heads placed on those missiles. He also took a stand on the Beaumark missiles. And of interest, of course, uh, Lester B. Pearson from Trudeau's own party criticized the United States for its efforts in Vietnam. And there are many other examples like that. The most important, I guess, is Chrétien refusing the U.S. demand to go to war uh, uh, on Iraq. Now, I would challenge anyone in Canada to give one example over the last few years since Trudeau was elected, one example where he has taken an independent stand with regards to foreign policy and could, compared to the United States. Could one, though, maybe uh, retort by talking about how we've got an unprecedented president in the United States, uh, one who appears to be a bully. Uh, there was the uh, uh, attempts to, well, they, they successfully refused to sanction uh, the, uh, the Title Three or... Uh, uh, you know, remove Title Three of the Helms-Burton Act, and and which would punish Canadian businesses invested in Cuba, and so you you've also got you know all sorts of other, you know, efforts by the American president that mm -hmm. are, are are making it very difficult for the Canadian government to to manage. Yeah. So I mean, is it you know, is it fair to put all of that on Trudeau? I would say, but for example, on this Title III, which you mentioned, which is really important, because it, it directly involves American interference in the internal affairs of Canada. That is providing the legal background, uh, background for uh, 
Cuban-Americans, wealthy Cuban-Americans in the United States to sue Canadian companies because they do business in Cuba. Now, I, I read all of the documents coming out of Trudeau's government, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Global Affairs regarding Title III. It is very, very, uh, very moderate saying to the United States, well, we were disappointed to see that. When they go to Cuba, of course, they were against the Title III. But as I mentioned yesterday, I gave many examples. When the situation was there, conditions were there, for example, Trudeau going to the White House, visiting Trump there, was not that the time when you had a press conference and everything was focused on Trudeau and Trump for Trudeau to say openly, we are against Title III of the Helms-Burton Act? Mm. He did not do that. They also met elsewhere in Europe. Kristen Freeland met with Pompeo. They never said a single word publicly against Title III of the Helms-Burton Act. And I think what I gave yesterday is the most blatant example right on Canadian turf with Canadian journalists there. Pence visiting Ottawa, Trudeau right next to him. Was not that the opportunity for Trudeau to say right to Pence's face, hey, we do not agree with Helms-Burton, the, uh, the application of Title III. Stop that right away. We insist. Or he alternatively, uh, yes. you, you, there, there could have been some understanding between the two of them. Hey, don't embarrass us by bringing up Helms-Burton. Yeah, well, you know, the he, diplomatic... Yeah, well, they, they did not... The United States did not Pence raise it. Pence didn't care. He, <laughs> did, he didn't raise it. He didn't have to because it's already being applied. But the point is that Trudeau did not mention that during the press conference. But what did he mention, Michael? He did mention the American narrative against Maduro, the dictator, the need for sanctions against Venezuela. So that's why I'm saying I said that yesterday, and I will say this again in another way. United States, Canada basically follows the American narrative on everything. When a press conference comes up, oh, the uh, uh, two, Amer two uh, Canadian uh, uh, persons are prisoned in China, against China. You know, everything that concerns United States against China, Canada gets involved in that. But nothing publicly against the Helms-Burton Act and the, and the blockade against Cuba. That's why I'm saying that while Canada says it's against the blockade, they self-righteously... A vote against the blockade in the United Nations every year. Say, oh, look how good we are. Our conscience is clear. We voted against the Helms-Burton law. We voted against the blockade once again this fall in the United Nations. Once a year, when everyone does it, it's sort of a ritual. I don't want to ridicule it because it's important. But it's just an annual ritual. Everyone knows it doesn't mean anything. But what would have meant something? right in front of the journalists when Pence was there, that Trudeau raised that right in front of his eyes, right in front of the whole world, that we are against that Helms-Burton law, against the blockade. Lift the blockade against Cuba now. If not, we will retaliate against the United States. Something like that. But Nothing at all. In, in, uh, respectfully, uh, it's hard to imagine any 
prime minister under the same circumstances doing something like that? I mean, what is the what what is the likelihood that any other? Because I mean, you, you mentioned that this current government is as more slavish toward the U.S. Yeah. than any previous government. Right. I, I wonder to what extent that has to do with personalities like Trudeau and Freeland, as opposed to more systemic. Uh, uh, structures and and uh, you know, well, the elements it, it, that it's are hard, there. It's hard to speculate. I like your question, but it forces us to speculate on history. As I mentioned yesterday, if Pierre Elliott Trudeau was president, was prime minister, I'm sure he would have said something with regards to the American blockade against Cuba. As I said yesterday, with the slavish attitude of his son, if Trudeau knew about it, he would turn over his grave. Because of, despite his, some of his very negative policies and foreign policy, at least he was a statement, statesman. He stood up for his thing. The same thing uh, goes to Jean Chrétien. Yes, uh, the, the Canadian government should have said that, should take a stand in publicly in front of Pence, in front of Trudeau with regards to the Helms-Burton law. And they did not do it. Uh, you know, are you asking me, am I being unrealistic by saying so? No, in the sense that the, the Canadian people have shown over the last few weeks by disrupting Cuba, uh, Trudeau's campaign in various parts of the city, calling him to his face, for example, in Brock University in St. Catherine. How come you recognize, do not recognize the legitimately elected Maduro government? whose election was approved by important experts in the field of elections, but you approve, you recognize the Bolsonaro government who imprisoned Lula as the main opponent. Explain that. This is the way where we have to deal with Trudeau and Christian Freeland and others in liberal government and force them to take a stand. If they are reelected again, we have to increase the pressure on the Trudeau government to abandon their pro-U.S. policy with regards to Latin America, with regards to Yemen and Saudi Arabia as well. You mentioned, uh, you, you were making reference earlier to this disruption network, or, mm -hmm. but uh, I don't believe, or maybe you have a different impression, but it seems to me that by and large the average Canadian isn't really paying attention to Cuba, Venezuela, and Latin America, maybe beyond the, the, the mainstream media talking points they're getting. I'm wondering about the reverse. What are you hearing from people in Cuba and Venezuela and uh, you know throughout Latin America about... What what Canada has the shift in Canadian policy, particularly Cuba, because you know the current prime minister is the son of uh, Pierre Trudeau, who had a very congenial relationship with Fidel yeah. Castro. Unfortunately, in Cuba, there's a lot of disinformation about Justin Trudeau. Uh, I'm the only one in Cuba who is fighting against that disinformation, with the collaboration of one media outlet in Cuba, and that is called Trafadores, which is the official uh, uh, newspaper of the Cuban National Network of Trade Unions. They have reproduced all of my articles, very critical of the Trudeau government, but the other Cuban media have not reproduced those articles. So most of the people, aside from those people who read Trevor Doris, they are in the dark about the Trudeau government. Uh, 
Uh, for example, I read uh, at one point when the Helms-Burton law became, went into effect, the headline read, just uh, quoting Friedland, saying, we are going to defend the interests of Canadian government in in Cuba, so you had this big headline with a photograph of Freeland, which, you know, I didn't like too much. He is, you know, very closely tied to fascism in the Second World War, closely tied to Trump. Oh, Freeland and Canada are defending the interests of Canadian, Canadian interests in Cuba. But as the, the Cubans should give the other side of the story, that that same Canada is also defending the interests of Canadian gold and mining interests, business interests, banking interests in Venezuela to the extent that they are actively working with the United States for a violent overthrow of the government in Venezuela in order to get back the gold and other mining reserves that were nationalized by the uh, Venezuelan government. I think, I think this, that this is a problem. Canada has a role to have a very diplomatic, good diplomatic relation with Cuba, they officially do not agree with criticizing Canadian government. Mm. Okay, I understand that, you know, but I'm a Canadian, right? We have to have our own view on the Canadian government. We, the solidarity movement in Canada with Cuba cannot afford to be hitched to the Trudeau government. I and others across Canada, we refuse to be conflated with the Trudeau government, that Canada and Canada, Trudeau equals Canada. No, Canadian people have an, our own independent stand against the Trudeau government. That has been manifested many times across the country. Just last night in Montreal, I saw the YouTube of it, it was disgusting. Demonstrators in Montreal confronted the Trudeau government candidate in Montreal with regard to their support for the dictatorship in Haiti. And they actually arrested a, a Montreal from Haiti wearing the Haitian flag and bustled her into a police car. This is what's happening in Canada. People have to, we have our own independence stand. We cannot afford to be hitched to the Canadian government. The Cuban government has a very diplomatic stand with regards to Canada. I understand that if I was a Cuban, if I was in the Cuban foreign ministry, I would do the same thing. Cuba has to negotiate with Canada. It's an important partner. But we as Canadians, we cannot do that. And I think the greatest ally of the Cuban government are those of us all across Canada who are demonstrating, who are confronting Trudeau, on its foreign policy with regards to Cuba, with regards to the blockade, with regards to its very weak position on Title III, and above all, its position with regards to Venezuela. Okay. Well, I think uh, on that note, that will probably be a good time to uh, close our interview now, but uh, appreciate uh, your, uh, your insights. And, yes. uh, of course, you've got a number of uh, stops uh, left in your tour before yes. you go off to Europe. So. Yes. But, uh, yes, we'll sure in a few days uh, I have a, a stop in Quebec City. I have to switch from English mode to French mode and then Montreal and then out to Vancouver at the end of the month. And I'm very proud right after that, the first stop of the tour that is making it an international tour is in Havana, a university in Havana. 
at the end of uh, no, uh, end of October of this year. I'm looking forward to that Havana stop. Arnold August is a writer, lecturer, and journalist, and the author of U.S.-Cuba Relations, Obama, and Beyond. His website is arnoldaugust.com. During the 2015 election campaign that saw the Liberals return to power for the first time in nearly a decade, Liberal Party leader Justin Trudeau pledged to run deficits, taking advantage of low interest rates in order to generate spending on key infrastructure projects. After the election, the government developed a crown corporation known as the Canada Infrastructure Bank, whose core mandate was to attract private sector funding for projects such as public transit, highways, ports, water systems, and broadband networks. To date, only four such projects have been approved, including this past July, $20 million in innovative financing for a public-private partnership to design, build, finance, operate, and maintain new and existing water and waste infrastructure in Mapleton, Ontario, over the course of the next two decades. Critics such as the Canadian Union of Public Employees and the Council of Canadians have been arguing that privatization of public assets is at the heart of this new bank, and that while wealthy business interests profit, the general public will see their own costs go up for essential services. Joyce Nelson delves into this subject in a recent global research article entitled, Privatizing Canada's Water Infrastructure Should Be an Election Issue. Joyce Nelson is an award-winning freelance writer and researcher. She writes regularly for the Watershed Sentinel, Counterpunch, and Global Research, among other publications. She's authored seven books, including Beyond Banksters, Resisting the New Feudalism from 2016, and its 2018 sequel, Bypassing Dystopia, Hope-Filled Challenges to Corporate Rule. She joins us now from Toronto. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour radio program, Joyce. Thank you very much, Michael. What was the incentive for the federal government to attract private sector involvement in these major infrastructure projects? Is, is it as simple as corrupt politicians knowingly advancing the fortunes of their wealthy friends, or is there more to it than that? Are there maybe more systemic factors in play? Well, that's a, a very big question, and I'm not sure I fully can answer it, but in this particular case, the um, Canada Infrastructure Bank is claiming that it is uh, establishing through this Mapleton contract is establishing a new pilot project to demonstrate new models for structuring and financing um, P3s. And as we'll see, it, this is a P3 with a, a real twist in it, and it certainly benefits um, the private sector. So in answer to your question, it looks like this is pretty much oriented to the private sector, to the detriment of public taxpayers. Well, what uh, we were talking about a, a, a pri- the private sector's role in water and waste infrastructure. I mean, first of all, how do you generate revenue? How how, how are private sector interests uh, uh, advantaged in uh, basically cleaning up poop? Well, um, uh, with any P three, there's uh, usually there's a you know decades long contract, and so. Uh, uh, private sector gets access to a revenue stream. And they like that because it's pretty much inflation, guaranteed against inflation. It's, it's a uh, reliable uh, return on their investment. So they like that kind of thing. 
But in this case, um, it, there were alternatives that Mapleton could have done, and I find that interesting. They didn't take advantage. Who knows why? Um, in Mapleton's case, this business model was pitched by the uh, by PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is one of the top four globalist um, companies advancing P3s. And um, so they they, made, they pitched this model for design, build, finance, operate, and maintain the system for 20 years. The uh, that's not that's pretty standard for a P3. And the twist is that um, the what's what's going to happen with this 20 million put in by the Canada Infrastructure Bank? What that does is it, as QP put it. I'll just read from uh, QP um, op-ed. There's nothing new about federal programs and institutions that try to make P3s more palatable, especially to smaller municipalities. In this case, the Canada Infrastructure Bank will subsidize the borrowing costs for corporations bidding on the 20-year deal. The bank is offering to lend the private sector money at a lower rate than corporations could get on their own. Details about the loan terms are blacked out in public documents about the deal, end of quote. So what this does is it, it's, um, it's, I, it's such a bizarre model in a way. Um, of course, as the consortium that wins the contract will obtain a secure stream of profits from operating and maintaining the system for 20 years. And of course, uh, homeowners are going to have to have their rates rise so that the consortium can get a solid return on its, in, in, on its investment. So what is new in this model? Well, basically, we taxpayers will subsidize the borrowing costs of the private sector so they can privatize the revenue stream from our water and wastewater systems. Hmm. So public subsidies get... situation yeah. uh, hasn't been reported on, except for uh, global research and... Um, Press progress, hmm. but uh, what's what's at stake here is huge because, and this is also not well known. Um, Council of Canadians has pointed out that, and I'll quote from their piece: um, the Canadian the Canadian government is imposing new and higher standards on municipal wastewater treatment across the country, which is a good thing for water safety. However, it appears the only funding for this is through the Canadian Infrastructure Bank, which is run by corporations and promotes P3s. The changes from the new regulations must be in place by 2020, limiting municipal government's options to choose public solutions, end of quote. So um, we're in a situation, there are thousands of government-owned water and wastewater systems across the country and many of them will have to upgrade their systems. And many communi communi communities will also have to put in new systems. I'm thinking of First Nations communities. So this is a huge market, potentially, for P3s. That means they're vulnerable. Because these new regulations are in place, that means they're vulnerable to um, the P3 pitch. And now with the Canada Infrastructure Bank, providing millions in, quote, innovating fi innovative financing, they're even more vulnerable to P3. 
We're seeing cities all over the globe resisting or even getting rid of existing public-private partnerships, uh, remunicipalizing them, as it were. How do you see trade agreements, uh, also championed by the Liberal government, complicating matters when it comes to these privatizations of of major infrastructure projects? Yeah, that's a really important question, too. Uh, You know, especially with CETA, the Canada-Europe trade agreement, we're not clear exactly to what extent do those new uh, companies from Europe that will be setting up projects here in Canada, to what extent are they guaranteed access to things like our water and wastewater systems? You point out in your article that there's been very little media attention paid to the role of the Canadian Canada Infrastructure Bank in, in privatizing public assets, uh, especially water and waste infrastructure. Now, pollsters are, are saying uh, that uh, just a, a week before the election that uh, the, the likely prospect is of a minority government, either liberal or conservative. What role do you see the smaller parties, like the NDP and the Greens, potentially playing in a minority parliament that might responsibly redirect the way we, direct, we develop these uh, needed infrastructure projects? Well, both the um, NDP and the Conservatives have said, the federal NDP and the federal Conservatives have said that they, if they were elected, they would wind down the Canada Infrastructure Bank, and they consider it a waste of taxpayer dollars, and they would eventually wind it down. The Green Party federally has also said that it would uh, change the mandate and uh, take private financing out of the Canada Infrastructure Bank. So there are at least there are three parties that we know of that are saying, let's uh, let's really change this Canada infrastructure, uh, infrastructure Bank. It's not needed. And in fact, if we recall, um, Canada still has the legislation in place to have for the uh, Bank of Canada, the publicly owned central bank, bank, bank of Canada, to to um, loan to feds, provinces, and municipalities for infrastructure, and that legislation is still in place. And instead of utilizing it, the Trudeau Liberals, when they came, when they were elected in 2015, they established this Canada infra- infrastructure bank hired a banker from Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, to design it. Given the, the very person who designed it, you realize, well, this is not going to necessarily be something the public is going to be find helpful. Mm. Well, so, yeah, we, we like you point out, the Bank of Canada is uh, available to, 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 to do this lending. You didn't even need to create this Canada Infrastructure Bank. So it's, it's interesting that these... Uh, Elected officials seem so impervious to that kind of suggestion. Yeah. But uh, Joyce Nelson, I really want to thank you for your time and, and for sharing these insights with our listeners. Thanks for having me on your show, Michael. We've been speaking with award-winning freelance writer and researcher Joyce Nelson. You can find her recent article, Privatizing Canada's Water Infrastructure Should Be an Election Issue, at globalresearch.ca. Her website is www.joycenelson.ca. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download our program from the site globalresearch.ca. 
To leave feedback on this or any of our programs, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week, and thanks again for listening.